the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Jacob, Job sorry, would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their, th th their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. So while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the Shaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, 
your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they were dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave me, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Thank you. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us, even though that's a hard word. We pray as we open your word, you'd open our lives to receive you afresh and your wisdom, that we may be witnesses to your glory your hope, and your presence in this world. For we ask it in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Phil Potter woke up on a bright morning on Monday the 9th. He got up and he went to work. Having passed his HGV license just after his 19th birthday, and more recently an advanced test, he got into his 30-ton tipper truck 
and made the journey, as he had done before, down Lansdowne Lane, just before 4 p.m. Moments later, the truck lost control for reasons we don't know yet and killed three men from Wales, Phil Allen, Robert Parker, and Stephen Vaughan. Stephen having only just recently been married. And of course, killing four-year-old Mitzi Steady and critically injuring her, her grandmother. At about 10 past four, a shockwave reverberated around the country and around our city from the epicenter of Weston. A tragedy, an appalling accident, and newsmen and women gather to tell the story, to search for truth and to listen to witnesses. And prayers are announced that they will be said on Tuesday morning in All Saints Church. And under all this, and in the shock and in the trauma, hangs a question, how could this happen. Sadly, it was not the only bad news of that week, where 200 died in the Mediterranean Sea, seeking a better life in Europe. More were killed in the Ukraine, as before the ceasefire, bombs fall and bullets fire. And we remember the past bombing of Dresden, commemorating where thousands lost their lives during wartime. So it is in this context of living in the world that we begin a new series today in the book of Job, that we begin as we begin a journey through the season that the church calls Lent. We're going to do it in our home groups, in our church, and we'll form part of the transformed evenings where John Bimpson will come and help guide our thinking through this wonderful book. The world, you see, searches for answers this day, and it has technology, of course, to help us we can all Google or use other search engines to find an answer to a question. But now, now we come to church and we open this ancient book. For Job is said to be one of the oldest books in the Bible, perhaps because it's in response to the question that's been asked down the ages and in Western on Monday the 9th. Why is there suffering in the world? when we believe it is created by an all-powerful, all-loving God. As someone who came to faith shortly before my mother was diagnosed with throat cancer and wrestled with the horrific events of children being killed in Dunblane School in Scotland, I have continued throughout my Christian life to ask the question, why? So I stand before you as one this morning affected by Weston, by other events in my life and in the world that lead me to struggle and question with God. I know a lot of you, and I know many of you have faced trials and calamities in your life, and some of you are facing them now. Virtually everyone in this room will experience a bitter calamity sooner or later. It will almost certainly seem absurd. It will seem meaningless and undeserved when it comes. And you and I will cry out, why, a hundred times before the cloud passes over. 
And most of our grief and pain does not come as a clear punishment for sin. Most of it comes out of nowhere. Most of it baffles our sense of justice. And that's why the book of Job is so relevant. Job's suffering seems to come out of nowhere and has no connection to his character. And his story is recorded for us so that we who gather in Bath, given the events that have happened, that we will have some help in living through these calamities that we face. And not allowing us just to be so English and keep a stiff upper lip about these things. But I pray will help us draw reverently and trustingly before the sovereign God who we have come this morning to worship, who is our treasure and our joy. And critical for us to understand are these two points that the writer is concerned for us to know. Firstly, is the challenge by God, challenge to God by Satan in verse 9. Will a person fear God for nothing? The first challenge. Will a person fear God for nothing? And the second is the question the author asks himself later in the book of Job, as we will come to. Where can wisdom be found? In all the brokenness and mess of the world, where do I go for wisdom? And the whole book works out a theodicy. And that means, namely, how to reconcile undeserved suffering with a God who is loving, with a God who is almighty, omnipotent, and just. And as we discover through Job, week by week, he doesn't answer our question of why, simply or directly. We have to dig. And so we begin to dig. And it may be helpful for you to turn to 509 in your Bibles as we go through. Job, of course, is the main character, and he's both the innocent sufferer and the one for whom the easy answers do not work anymore. You may have lots of easy answers to life's problems. Do share them over coffee afterwards, and we'll sit with the oracles in the corner. It'd be great to meet you. But Job doesn't come across with flippant, easy answers. Verse 1 introduces us to the man. He was blameless, and he was upright. He was one, we are told, who feared God and turned away from all evil. If suffering is intended as a punishment for evil, Job, therefore, is not a likely candidate here. He turns away from evil. Why? Because he's living in fear of the living God. And so he pursues the right paths. He pursues the right ways to live in order to avoid evil. And his reputation is blameless. And his devotion to God, his worship of the living God, drives and centers him in everything that he does. His heart is for God. Verse 2 and 3 describe the way that God has blessed him in his righteousness. He has seven sons and three daughters, like um, Oklahoma, isn't it, I think, you know, with a springe on top. But anyway, he has seven sons and three daughters and huge numbers of sheep and camels, cattles and servants. The idea is the abundance of this man, the wealth of this man, the security of this man. And he was the greatest people in all of the East. So people looked at him and thought, wow, how great Job is. And then verses 4 and 5 describe a specific instance of Job's fear of God towards his children. Because it seems that every time his sons and daughters gathered for a party, 
Job would get up early the next morning, early the next morning. There was no priesthood at this time. You didn't go to a priest. He got up early and he offered a burnt offering just in case, just in case one of them had sinned or cursed God in their heart in having drunk too much, perhaps. In other words, he was extremely jealous for the honor of God's name. He wanted nothing to dishonor God. And we're getting this picture of this man who is in relationship with God. He didn't want God to be profaned. And he was extremely vigilant for the sake of his children. He didn't want any of them to come into ruin. So he acted as a sort of a go-between, between him and God and them and God, by getting up early every morning after these events and offering sacrifices. But then Job's calamity comes, and we have to go down to verse 13. It was at one of these feasts when all of his children were gathered, all ten of them were in the home of the eldest brother, and then a messenger comes across in 14 and 15 verse. A messenger comes to tell Job and tells him that the Sabians had attacked They've run off with his cattle and his asses, the donkeys, and he's killed all the servants. They've been put to the sword. And then another messenger comes in verse 16 and says that the fire of God has fallen, destroyed all his sheep and his servants. And then 17, another messenger comes and says the Chaldeans had raided the camel herd and they've taken them all and killed the servants. And then finally, at verses 18 and 19, the message comes that all of his children... Now, you've got to get into the heart of this. These are so easy to read, these words, aren't they? It's so easy, in one sense, to desensitize our news to to, to the news that a four-year-old was crushed to death this week in Bath, who is the daughter of parents. Job's children have been crushed and killed in the house as a result of a tornado. We have to get into the pain of this book. We have to get into the pain of the world. We can't just read it glibly. And we have to notice that these two calamities were caused by evil men, the Sabians and the Chaldeans, and that two were caused by what insurance brokers today would call acts of God. Lightning, possibly fire from the sky, or wind. A great tornado in verse 19. And in one afternoon, this is an afternoon, as it was in Weston, all Job's prosperity is gone. Turn off all the clocks, Auden writes. He was my north, my south, my east and west. There's no point anymore. There's no point of doing anything. And when in the world, what is in the world is going on here, we ask. What is going on? Why is this happening? As you would ask, wouldn't you? As perhaps we asked on Monday. And to see what is going on, we have to look outside the world, and that's very interesting in Job. We have to look beyond the world. And the world alone, in spite of the Enlightenment, in spite of Google, doesn't have all the answers to the great questions that we might ask in life. And the answer we find is found in heaven. So the writer gives us a glimpse into heaven to understand better what's happening here in this story that Job is going through. And it describes a meeting between God and Satan in verses 6 to 12. It describes a meeting where Satan says, 
that he spends his time going to and forth and fro around the world, roaming around the world. There is a force of evil that moves around the world. Then God says, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? But Satan isn't impressed. In verse 9, he insinuates that Job is not such a great specimen of devotion to God. He says that the only reason Job fears God is to get rich and be blessed. Does Job fear God for nothing? Job fears God because it will mean health, wealth, and prosperity. That's all. That's the only reason he is getting up in the morning and making his offering, so that he can be blessed. So Satan lays down a wager to God and says in verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. God could have said, I don't need to prove anything to you or anyone else, Satan. I know the heart of my servant Job, and that is enough for me. He could have said this, but in this case he didn't. A test will show that in the heart of Job, God himself is more valued than any possession or any family member. God is more valuable. So God says in verse 12, very well then, because God is sovereign, remember. God is sovereign. He has in, he, he has in your power, everything he has is in your power, Satan, but on the man himself do not even lay a finger. And at the heart of this exchange between God and Satan is Satan's claim that the Creator's purpose in creating has run into serious trouble. The human race, he claims, discredits God, that's us, you and I, discredits God as being wise and loving and a just creator. Why? Because there is no sincere love for God upon the earth. No one sincerely loves God upon the earth. And what Satan implies is that we creatures of God only love God because of what we get out of him. And Satan is cunning, but he is also a very clever theologian. He knows, Dennis Lennon writes, he knows full well what would pull the linchpin out of the created order. God is love, and everywhere his works express his nature. He desires to bring into being sons and daughters in, in his own image who are free to know and love him. And Satan claims he cannot find any God-adoring person upon the earth. Do people truly worship and adore God for nothing? Just give a church community, just give an individual a poke, as it were, with a large stick, and you will see their devotion evaporate before your very eyes in confusion and despair. And before long, you will hear them whinging and mutter as they pack their bags and go off in search of a more reasonable God. For love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, said Shakespeare. So amazingly, there is some truth in what the prince of deception and lies accuses us of 
And to follow this more, it may be good that during this series, as well as reading Job, you read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis during Lent as a compliment to this service, this series. As the letters question God's motives for loving Job, just as Satan is questioning Job's motives, your motives, my motives for being devoted to God. But Job's devotion is not mercenary, as though God himself were of no value. No, Job's devotion is based on the value of God for who God is, not what God can do for you. It's utterly devoted to the person of God, without anything, nothing added. And the revelation of this truth is so important that God is willing to subject Job to grief, to poverty, in order to make this truth known. And then in verses 20 and 21, Job makes his devotion to God really, really clear. Then Job arose and rent his robe, a sign of great grief for the Jewish faith, and shaved his head completely. And he fell upon the ground, but he fell upon the ground and worshipped And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some response in the light of what has happened to him in one afternoon. So Satan is proved to be wrong. Job did not curse God when he lost his wealth and his children. He worshipped God, and he blessed God. And so the true value of the relationship he has with God became evident to all who saw that. And God takes a huge risk in this, for he entrusts his reputation, God's reputation, with a human being, a man at that. And men are deceivers, many, ever. He takes a risk with Job. He takes a risk with Job to act as a witness upon this earth for him. To work through us, human frailty. And Jesus is going to later teach that we are called to be salt and light in the world. In the world, with all its calamities, with all its darkness. Why? Because we need witnesses like Job who will act as salt and light when the sky is falling. As Christians, we carry God's reputation wherever we go. Be that in the toddler group. Be that in work tomorrow morning. Be that with our neighbors when their fence falls down. But God may say of each of us, Have you considered my servant Sylvia? Have you considered my servant Henry? Have you considered my servant Alex, my servant Mary Ellen? Would you and I make Job's response and so reveal the glory of God in the world? And John White says, to let my light shine, to be a witness, demands no more than honesty. It demands honesty before unbelievers. Witnessing is not putting on a Christian front so as to convince prospective customers. 
Witnessing is being honest. That is being true to what God has made me in my speech and in my day-to-day behavior. One of my favorite themes in the book of Job is his honesty. And later we will see his blunt honesty with God. For now we see his tears, we see his shaven head, and we see a calm acceptance in chapter 1 of all the suffering that has come upon him. Yet later in chapter 3, we see him in turmoil and confusion. We see a sense of bitterness and anger that ultimately leads to depression. And yet it's still all directed towards God, revealing he is still in honest communication with God. And this leads him, we will read, to trust him utterly and continues through this process to build up his integrity, as Job's wife refers to. Will you keep your integrity, Job? And it will build in him godly character. Do you and I want godly character built in us? For we read that Job was a good and godly man. And before the day of trial, he had grown in his belief of God's goodness and faithfulness. That's why he was offering worship to God early in the morning. And this has been built over many years as a foundation that seems secure. No matter what disaster could shake it, what was planted in Job's heart over those years of worship and devotion that now come to the front with all the calamity and darkness that is now descending upon him, what is going to outflow from his heart because of the relationship that he has grown over these many years? What will God plant in your heart? What's God going to plant in your very soul as we go through this series? That will flow out of you, helping to speak well of Jesus in the world that you live and move and have your being in. What is going into you? That will flow out as we heard on the news about Christians who came out to help at a time of great crisis in Western. I must come to an end this morning and not turn this into a sermon on the whole book, how I would love to. So as we enter this holy season of Lent, it's strange when we move from one day to another and think what's different. But on Wednesday, at Ash Wednesday, where we come and receive, if we want, a cross of ash on our forehead, where we are told, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. As we go through this holy season of Lent, as we seek to renew our turning to Him, as we examine our relationship with Him, I simply want to encourage us to be honest See it as a time when Sunday by Sunday, week by week in your home groups, day by day in your own devotions, that you come to these events expectant, expectant to meet God, for God is bringing some of heaven to earth, that you come honestly, really honestly, that you come prepared to shed tears for the world to shed tears for your situation and the situations of people who are sat right next to you now. Come prepared to deepen your life in wisdom and integrity, for the world needs these things. 
come, do come with a growing desire in you to be an effective witness for God. For the wisdom in this book will aid you and guide you. But as we prepare to come to communion this morning, I end with three brief implications from our passage this morning. They're very brief. Firstly, join with Job. Let us affirm with all our hearts the absolute sovereignty of God. Let us say with the psalmist, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Let us say with Daniel, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? Let us make the absolute sovereignty of God our rock upon which we build the life we live. Sovereignty of God, the first thing. The second is, do let your tears flow. Let your tears flow when calamity comes. Job, you see, rose up, rent his garment and shaved his head and fell upon his face. And the sobs and the grief that poured out of him, the pain, are not signs of unbelief. Job knows nothing of a flippant, insensitive, superficial, praise God anyhow. We can so fall into that as Christians, and we lose the whole story of lament that is so clear in our Bible and is part of our response to suffering. The beauty of his devotion is because it was in grief, not because it replaced the grief. So let your tears flow freely when it gets tough. As I sat and watched the news on Western and let tears flow. And let the rest of us weep with those who weep. Let us trust in the sovereignty of God, but let our tears flow. And then finally trust in his goodness. For even if God had let Satan take Job's life, we know what Job would, Job would have said, Job, sorry, Job would have said. Psalm 63, verse 3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Do we truly trust the goodness of God is the huge question of Job. It may not answer the question of suffering, but do you trust in the goodness of God, who he really is, not what we think we can gain from him in some discordant, distorted, abhorrent, prosperity kind of gospel message. Is God alone your treasure and your joy? That is the deep question of Job. And he asks it not when life is good, but when life is rock bottom. I will arise and go to my father, said the prodigal in the pigsty. Will we arise during this season and go and meet dad? May the Lord give you grace to affirm the sovereignty of God. Let your tears flow that he may become more and more my treasure, my joy. What a journey we're in for. Please make it, not just here, but feast on it during the week 
as Esther has said. We're going to pray now with just some images on the screen and some music. Lots of words. We're praying and letting the tears flow, but trusting in the sovereign God who has come in his son Jesus Christ as we remember. Christ who was whole came and was broken so that we who are broken might be made whole. Amen.